Welcome to the Sales Management Podcast, your source for actionable sales management strategies and tactics. I'm your host, Coach CRM co-founder, Corey Bray. No long intros, no long ads. Let's go. I'm excited to be joined by Jenny Payne, a sales manager over at Bill, formerly Bill.com. And we're going to talk about a really exciting topic that I think makes a lot of sense in today's environment, which is moving from a role in sales enablement to sales management, which is something that Jenny's done over the course of the last year or two. Jenny, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. I am so excited about this because I see a restructuring in the world of enablement. A lot of really amazing folks are getting moved out of roles for a variety of reasons. And I think there's a massive opportunity for some of these people to step in and just do a phenomenal job in a sales management capacity. So I wanted to dig into that broadly. I think to start, if you could give me just some insight into what was your motivation sitting in a sales enablement role to want to explore frontline sales management as an alternative? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think for me, I have a really competitive nature and I wasn't feeling like the enablement side really scratched that itch. I wanted to get back into more of a team environment and really kind of reap the benefits of all the work that you put into salespeople to help them succeed. Um, I wanted to have some of that success myself. So that really inspired me to, uh, to switch course and go the management route. Is it paying off? Is it what you expected it to be? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of fun. It's hard. Um, I think the hardest part is just the monthly sales cycle and, and the quotas and doing really well one month and then starting over new um, and really trying to keep that culture of a high performing team. So it's been tough, but it's been really rewarding. I love it. I love it. So what I'm hearing is that in the enablement world, you've got more of a longer term time horizon and things that might build on top of each other, but in sales, you've got that reset button. Yep. Every month, no matter how well you do, how poor you do, you're starting over fresh. (laughs) Oh yeah. That's it. What's uh, from a competitive perspective, has it, has it met your expectations and made it a little more fun on that front? Definitely. Yeah. And it's been really cool to see people develop. I think from an enablement side, I was focused on onboarding. So we were really, really heavy in those first two weeks. And then you kind of let them go to their own respective teams, um, you know, focus with their managers, let the managers get all the credit. And then you'd have to start over fresh. And you didn't really see them progress as closely as you see being their sales manager. Um, So that's really paid off as well. So with onboarding, what has helped you as a sales manager now that you brought over with you after having onboarded a bunch of folks? Yeah, I think what was really important for me is to kind of have a North Star. And I give a lot of credit to Closed Loop for this uh, mindset, activity, skill set really being able to identify where a rep is today, identify where the gaps are in their skill set and um, their mindset, and really understand where you want to take them and their potential and figure out a way to get there. So it was really helpful having that. And I have that for every rep on my team today. Just I know what they excel in. I know where their gaps are and I'm able to coach to that. And it's unique for every rep. And it sounds like it just builds up over time. It's not something that you you hand off. No, it's yours. Definitely not. <laughs> yeah, it's, mine it's to keep. yours. 
when you're when you were doing onboarding, what was your typical onboarding process for someone? Not process, but how long did it take to to take somebody from its enablements job to okay, we're handing you off to the manager? Is that a couple of weeks, yeah. couple of months? It was a couple of weeks um, from an enablement standpoint, but the hard thing was you never really knew if the manager was going to continue. Um, we never knew what we were going into in terms of you know what their team was like, how much coaching they were to receive. So we kind of did our best to say, here are the areas, but it was really hard as we scaled to be able to ensure that that was being coached to, or that rep was effectively being developed. If you had to go back in time, what would you do differently to get a little more insight into that? Um, I'd probably build out a system or a scorecard um, and ensure that we had the manager's buy-in. That was pretty tough because all managers are different and they view, they view coaching differently too. Um, so ensuring that we were hearing back from the managers, um, and that they were really bought into the development and it's kind of like your spreadsheet that you, um, you coached us on. It's just really ensuring that the manager is bought in to that reps development as well. And it's an ongoing basis that they're coaching. Ongoing basis. And that spreadsheet is morphed into coach CRM. If you want to check it out, mm -hmm. coachcrm.com. I said no long ads, not no ads, right? <laughs> Small plug. <laughs> Small plug. I love it. I love it. So what is the least fun thing about the onboarding process? Um, I think the redundancy for me, that was really tough. Um, same thing over and over and over again. I was kind of aching for something different. Yeah. And so you're doing the same thing over and over again with different people. Yeah. I think it'd be great if it was less siloed and this isn't a where you or anybody else works thing, it just seems like it's not something where the onboarding enablement team has a continuous pulse on the folks that come out of their, their programs. Cause I've seen this at hundreds of companies, literally hundreds of companies over the last 10 years where you take somebody, you bring them in, you do the onboarding thing, they go on. And then that, that person that brought them in, it's almost like they're never to be heard from again with these individuals, but two weeks isn't long enough for anything other than to introduce material. And my fear is that this is where a lot of, a lot of enablement teams are struggling or have struggled over the course of the last several months. You've got a tightening of the belt. Companies are wanting to spend less money, get more out of their resources, drive ROI and things like this. They're also not hiring a ton of people. So if you're in a world where there's a company, hiring's down, the need for performance is up, how would you repurpose folks that were typically doing onboarding in the past and get more out of their skill set and more out of their knowledge? It's a great question, the million-dollar question. Um, I think why we're here today, urging them to get into a different field where they could really use their skill set get into sales management, there's not a huge learning curve, especially if coaching is something that you have a strong suit in, um, but maybe exploring other capacities within the organization, because there's always going to be a need for sales managers. Um, but I find good sales managers are kind of hard to come by. Yeah. And if you're just sitting there continuing to onboard a smaller and smaller number of people, you kind of have a target on your back from the, the finance people, huh? Yeah. And you burn yourself out too. I, I mean, I know very few people that love onboarding and feel energized every new class to do it over again. 
takes a really certain type of person. Got it. When making that transition, if somebody's considering it, what's what would you do to prepare an individual that was in a enablement, whether it's onboarding or not? What are some things that they want to take off in their personal skill set or personal onboarding into sales management box prior to either considering the leap or making the leap? Yeah, I think always having a North Star, like I said, for me, it was the triangle selling framework Um, and being able to speak to that in an interview. What I find is when you're being interviewed for a management role and it's your first management role, the interviewer will always want to hear how you'll tackle management issues. You know, they don't want to hear, I'll figure it out when I get there. So you really have to be able to speak to it. So having a North Star, having a framework um, and a foundation to be able to build off of as you go into your management career, I think was really helpful for me. So whether it's a methodology, whether it's a way that you approach rep issues, um, coaching, that's all super helpful. That really helped me. Yeah. Yeah. Having a methodology. This is one of the things that I think people get hung up on or sometimes get wrong is that if you don't have a methodology that's in place and widely adopted, the person that most negatively impacts is the frontline sales manager. You've got people out there that say, hey, let the reps do what works for them. Great. If you have somebody that puts up 120% every month, every quarter, let them run. But that's not everybody. And it's it's definitely not people that are being newly onboarded into the team, either via external hires or internal promotions. Having a common language, a sales methodology that's comprehensive, that actually works across the team, that makes the manager's job substantially easier because for each challenge that pops up, deal stall after demo, can't get to the right stakeholder, need to land and expand. There is a specific action that is defined that the salesperson can take and the manager can coach them to. Now, if you don't have that, some companies they'll say, oh, we do challenger. Okay, cool. How do you do a challenger demo? Show me four challenger demos and I'll show you four demos that are completely different. And so how do you coach that? And how do you coach that if you're a new manager? That's that's just not possible. So that's, I love, I love that you dug into that a little bit. And it doesn't matter. I mean, triangle selling is awesome. As long as the methodology is complete and it actually works and everybody knows it, it's easy to learn, easy to do, easy to coach, then you're going to be a winner. But if you're sitting there saying, wow, there's things that our team does that our methodology doesn't touch on. If you're doing one of the checklist methodologies like Medic or something like that, it's great for the CRO to inspect deals. But how does Medic tie to demos? That's a whole completely different thing that you've got to build as an enablement group if all you have is that one thing that is that is mandated top down because it is a really good Medic's phenomenal tool for the CRO to forecast because that's their job to forecast. But the frontline salesperson's job is much broader than that. And that's where if you're enabling managers with tools, such as a complete methodology, then they're able to rock and roll from that perspective. Definitely. And it just gave me the confidence right out of the gate too, um, that I might not have had, had I not been coaching to the same thing with all of the reps. Yeah. Speaking of coaching, how much time do you spend coaching? I try to do two calls a week per rep. So two calls per week. So you're listening to two. Wow. So in addition to live meetings, you're listening to two calls per week per rep. Correct. I don't spend a lot of time on live calls for reps. Typically love, it's only. Love that. Tell us why. Yeah. Um, when I think about a lot of the most successful coaches, whether that's in sales, whether that's um, in the NFL, no one is in the game coaching or no one is in the game playing rather 
Um, it just gives you a lot of time to be able to look back at a call. I can listen to it at two X. I can get a lot more done than I could do with being sitting on a call with a rep. And For I feel sure. like it bogs the reps down too. Oh, it bogs them down. Yeah, exactly. Because they're, you're there. Yeah. So it, totally. you're, you're in their head. They're thinking, yep. oh, now I've got to be, it's not even, I hate to use the phrase beyond my best behavior because that's not what I mean. It's just the first thing that comes to mind and we're recording this live. So I don't have time to go prepare something. They, they want to show their best and and maybe take fewer risks and maybe second guess mm-hmm. themselves a little bit, which is kind of odd. And then the other piece is you're a crutch mm-hmm. because now you're there and you can you can do things for them. And what I always say about that is if, if the managers show up in super close, if they're the ones that are jumping in and working the deal, because that's what they like to do. First of all, if you're a manager, you can't do that as a second line manager. So how's that preparing you for your career progression? And second of all, what do you think the best reps feel like if their boss is showing up and doing their job for them? Good people don't like it. Struggling mm-hmm. reps love it. So then the good folks leave and you just have a team of C or D players. Totally. And you can't scale. There's no possible way you could scale being on every single call. So yeah, I am. I'm one to listen back on gong calls and use scorecards. That's my forte. Love it. And then when you're having the coaching conversations with folks, what are some of the, the differences in approach? So when you look at somebody that's tenured, somebody that's new, somebody that's got a lot of experience, somebody that's earlier in their career, how do you leverage what you know about them personally in order to coach them in an effective way? Yeah. Well, I think everyone receives feedback differently. Some reps I can be really blunt with um, and let them know and they appreciate that. And it's really effective. Other reps, um, you can't be as blunt. And so I think it comes back to, you know, what type of issue am I coaching to? Is it mindset? Is it an activity or is it skill set? And that can, that really allows me to peel the layers of the onion back a little bit um, and understand how to coach them effectively. So typically when I'm in one-on-ones, we'll go over a call. Um, we'll discuss kind of the issues that I see based on that mass. And then I will have them run through it again with me. So we're really honing that knowledge in um, and ensuring that they're doing it going forward. And I'll have them bring me a call where they actually do it in the future. Wow. Really so it. they've got they've got to demonstrate that they actually did it. Definitely, not, not yeah, just a nice conversation. Exactly, yeah. I want to see the proof. Yeah, and mass mass just to, to be very clear for everyone listening is mindset, activity, skill set. If we identify that somebody has a mindset challenge and we start talking about skill set or knowledge or something like that, it's not necessarily going to change their mindset. The only way to change somebody's mindset, this goes back to the cognitive behavioral therapy model is you've got them to, you got to get them to take an action where they see a result that impacts their mindset, which leads them to make a decision to take an action where they see a result and impacts their mindset. And they do it again. And it's this continuum. And unless they take an action, it's never going to change. You can't tell somebody something and have them change their mindset. I can't tell you the world's flat. I can't tell you that it's sunny at night. You've got to physically see it. And in this case, you might need to physically do something before you see results to impact a mindset like that. So at this point, now that you've been in the sales management role for a while, what's your relationship with enablement and what gives you an advantage over other managers who haven't been in that role before? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, it comes, it's very top of mind right now because um, we're working to merge two different companies basically into one um, and having to do a lot of training with enablement. And we definitely speak the same language um, and we can help identify areas where we might need a little more training um, and what exactly that training looks like. Because when I would work with managers um, when I was on the enablement side, they weren't really sure what to ask or how to ask um, and, you know, create resources and content based on our needs. So being able to speak the same language, it's a lot easier to get to a common goal. What, what, tell me a little bit more about that common language. Were the asks unreasonable because they didn't actually understand how the sausage was made? <laughs> yeah, um, you could say that. I think a lot of times they don't know how much they can ask for. Um, they don't know what's reasonable or sometimes they ask for too much and it's really difficult to then show kind of what all will go into that ask. Um, so just being able to understand what's realistic, um, and where's our starting point and where do we want to end up as a team? You know, what's our common goal? Got it. Give me an example of something that could be, it could start as an unreasonable ask. Maybe it could start as something that's very big or robust. And then given the fact that you've worked in enablement and management, you could pair that down to something that is still going to accomplish the goal, but it might be much smaller deliverable at the end of the day. Yeah. So when we were rolling out this methodology that we used about, I think two years ago now, um, I came over as a new sales manager and I really wanted closed loop. Um, I wanted all the teams trained on closed loop. I really wanted to be able to use it myself. Um, And I didn't really know how much went into that. I didn't know how the teams would effectively be trained on a new methodology. I didn't know how much time it would um, take of enablement. And I got to see that firsthand. And Renee, actually, who um, you've worked with, is a big proponent of closed loop as well. I got a firsthand look at, you know, how she would build out the scorecards, how she organized all of the team trainings, um, how much time really needed to go into effectively having reps understand a methodology and then be able to use it. Um, And we got to work really closely together and she's wonderful. I think she's a huge reason why this methodology was so successful um, within Divi and also within Bill. Yeah. So working together, understanding what each other does. I did this exercise one time. It was eye-opening to me and I had everyone on my team. This was like, wow, I'm getting old. This was 15 years ago. I had everybody on my team make a list. And I said, everybody, I want you to do three things. I want you to write down everything that you do. And for each one of those items, I want you to write down who does something before that impacts that thing that you do. And then also for everything on your list, I want you to write down who does something after me once I do what I do. And it was fascinating for a couple of reasons. One is nobody gave me a list that was anywhere near complete. I'd go walk through it with them and I'd say, don't you do a bunch of different things? And then second of all, in terms of the before and the after, the people that they're getting the handoffs from, that they're giving the handoffs to, it wasn't accurate or complete nearly to the extent that I was hoping that it would be. So that was an incredibly eye-opening exercise. I got this idea from reading about Toyota and how Toyota created their uh, Toyota production systems, a book called The Toyota Way by Jeffrey Liker, if you want to check it out. Absolutely fascinating exercise. And once you realize that folks on your team don't truly understand, shockingly, what they do, and then also 
how inputs and outputs from other teams impact them. That's a great way to just really diagnose and prioritize some of the the management challenges that might exist across an org. I'm curious if there's anything, you know, given what I just walked through, that you might advise enablement teams or frontline management teams when working together to really focus on there. Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I would say always having a timeline um, and understanding exactly what goes into creating that timeline um, and understanding also that it's not a standardized process, that reps are different, that teams are different, um, and you can't expect a one-size-fits-all. I think that's a common issue um, that I see a lot as well is, okay, one team might be able to really absorb this knowledge quickly and be able to use it, but another team might need some more time whether that's yeah. training, whether that's resources, maybe a little more handholding. So we can't always standardize. Yeah, I see that a lot because you've got the early career folks, you got the later career folks, you've got folks that came from industry, folks that didn't. If you've got somebody that's got experience and came from industry, give them the customer stories, the product, the discovery messaging, competitive landscape, let them rip, right? Totally, yeah. But it you might know, be more difficult for others. Other others might need to develop their sales skills more. Maybe you're doing talent arbitrage. I always think it's funny that the there's not a clear acknowledgement that many sales teams hire people that aren't really that good at sales. It's fascinating. What if a hospital hired a doctor that wasn't good at medicine? <laughs> that I mean, you, you could hire the person that's last in their class in medical school, but they're still called doctor. Yeah. And they've gone through eight plus years of intensive training, probably with some work experience. Well, definitely with, with hands-on experience through that eight years. And then in a sales role, there's nothing wrong with hiring folks that don't have a ton of experience. But the trick is acknowledging that the enablement resources are going to have to be elevated for that person. And the two-week onboarding program isn't going to cut it. Definitely. But then how do you scale? It's, a, it's kind of a revolving door. It's difficult. Yeah, well, I think this goes back to what you were saying earlier, which is if you've got somebody that's new that's coming in, that two weeks isn't enough. Mm -hmm. And you've got you got the two weeks of the initial process and where it might be plenty for somebody that worked at a competitor and hit their quota a bunch and knows the industry inside and out and maybe used to be a practitioner inside of that industry that you sell to, that might be perfect. And I think the other thing that I've seen a lot is the onboarding teams, they might have the same program for sales development and sales and sales engineering. And it doesn't fork fast enough. What are your thoughts on that front around making sure it's yeah. role specialized as well as who the, who the individual is? Yeah. I mean, in an ideal world, I think that would be wonderful. It'd be every sales manager's dream, but realistically, it's hard to have that bandwidth. I mean, I, I know firsthand how busy anyone doing onboarding is and how packed their schedule is the first half of the month um, that, and I feel like it's difficult to continue to ask more and more of them. And it's just going to lead to more burnout. Yeah. What's, what's an example of something that you've found that you could cut out to eliminate the risk of burnout? And enablement? Yeah. Mm, that's a really good question. Because um, the reason I ask is a couple of reasons. One is if someone's in enablement, it's good for them. But also if someone's in management and they're observing and getting this pushback, then at least being able to start the conversation, make a suggestion or socialize, hey, I see that we're spending a ton of time here. 
Because I think that's the problem, right? People spend time in areas that they like. People Mm -hmm. spend time in areas that they're weak at. And people spend time in areas that they think are more complicated than they actually are. And there's so many opportunities to just withdraw invested time from the system. And unless you step back and really, really analyze it, really understand, well, that thing that we do is not absolutely necessary. We don't have to spend eight months coming up with personas and competitive intel because all our salespeople hear this stuff every day. Let's run an effective workshop with some of them. And in a week, we'll have something that's 90% there. Yeah. No, that's a great point. And back to your question, I think for us, what we realized is product training really was bogging down the first two weeks of onboarding. Mm-hmm. Um, and to remove that, because that will come in time, we just wanted to get people on the phones. We wanted to have them effectively be finding pain in their conversations um, to remove the product piece and touch on it, but then also have you know more of a built out product training later on in the role, um, have one every six months that freed up a lot of time and gave back to enablement to, you know, learn the methodology or whatever was really important to get them hitting the ground running. Love it. And I think that there's probably a difference in the amount of content. If you think about just learning pain for any given persona, you might really have three to five pain points that you want to hit on. That's fairly quick to learn. Whereas a robust product could take a long, long time. Definitely. Yep. What are your thoughts on learning management systems? Management systems as in? Learning management system, LMS. In what context, I guess? So like, do they work as automated ways to train people? How do they work? I know they work. They can work. I'm not trying to say that they don't work. What are good ways and bad ways that you've seen a learning management system uh, not necessarily implemented, but used to drive rep development? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the learning management system that I use is just, again, having a framework, having a foundation, being able to coach to something in every different scenario. Um, That's something that I see work really well. Um, But I do find at a lot of organizations the um, first line managers don't always get that development um, that really we're coaching our reps to. So I think that's an area that I could see companies spend more time improving is how are you developing your managers? I think there's a huge gap there um, in terms of skill sets, in terms of continued coaching. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that that seems to be the theme you have to get better and better over time. I was playing in a pool tournament last night. And if I want to get my self-esteem knocked down a couple of rungs, I go play in a pool tournament because you can go play with your friends all day long. But I'm sitting there. I was playing this guy who was borderline pro, objectively based on his rating, his Fargo score. And I just, I couldn't do anything. You, you can't do anything against these people because they are so much better than you. And then it begs the question, why am I better than all my friends? And I can't even come close to competing against this guy. I looked up, there's this thing called robustness in your Fargo score. And it shows basically how much of you played in tournaments. This guy's played in more than, I think he's had more than 5,000 scored games in a tournament. I have a couple have hundred. No chance. <laughs> yeah, I have no chance. It just He's had more time on the table. And this is a, a big piece where 
you've got this culture of rapid promotion. And that's something that people talk about a lot. And then you've got all this, all this other stuff around that. Oh, every six months, we're going to put you in a new role. Well, guess what? By the time you hit mid-market account executive, that no longer exists. Mm-hmm. You can you can have fake title, I'm a senior this or a super senior, whatever. None of, none of that matters. When you've got a sales team that's selling an important business solution to an important business person, all of that stuff around tiers of promotion and things like that, that, that all ceases to exist. You're playing the same game against people that may have substantially more experience than you. Playing pool against somebody like the, the guy that I just described, where <laughs> I'm just going to get smoked. And if we recognize that and realize that, hey, wow, I've got a lot of improvement to do. I've got a lot of opportunity. I need to get better. But sometimes folks don't have that that perception because at any point in time, most salespeople are the best that they've ever been. The self-realization is that they're also the worst that they're ever going to be Mm -hmm. if they continue to get better. And I love that. I love that saying. Today's, I always say this with Coach Sierra, I say it's the best it's ever been. And it's the worst that it'll ever be from this point forward. And a, a way to set that mindset for an individual, if you've got somebody on your team that's that's concerned or struggling or just borderline arrogant, maybe, is you can ask questions such as, you know, think back five years ago. Five years ago, yourself. How did you feel about your ability to X, Y, or Z? How how'd you feel about your ability to do discovery conversations versus today? And inevitably people say, oh, I wasn't that good at it. I struggled with this. This other piece wasn't as tight as it should be. And then the next question is, well, five years from now, what do you think your view of yourself today is going to be? And then all of a sudden they realize, oh, wow, I am this person that's growing and getting better. And that's that example right there is a way conversationally, probably take a few more back and forth than I just gave to get folks to buy into the fact that, hey, my mindset, if I have a growth mindset around my career, I can really get better. I can really compete because there's folks at my competitors that are better than me. And if we think that, if we believe it, even if it's not true, if we believe it, we're going to get better. We're going to push ourselves to get better. And that's, that's a big, a big trick. So I'm curious in, in terms of your work, how do you make sure that folks are motivated to get better and execute, even if they might be winning, even if they might be hitting quota, doing some of these things, you see, Hey, there's opportunity here. What are some things that you've done to, to highlight that and help work with them to motivate them to get better? Yeah, I think it really comes down to hiring reps that are coachable. And in the interview process, I really try to um, find examples or ways that someone can prove to me that they want to be coached and they want to excel. And a lot, a lot of the times um, you find reasons why people are motivated, why they're passionate outside of work that will keep them going. And if you can factor that in and build that into how you coach this rep, because you understand what motivates them, what they're passionate about, where they want to end up. I think that really helps in continuing to instill this environment of high performance. Where they want to end up. Is that professionally, personally, both? Can be. Yeah. Professionally probably is a little bit easier to use. I would say, what's that next role that you're trying to get to? How can we get you there? Um, But if there's a personal goal, if, you know, um, someone's having a baby, they really want to make a lot of money, they want to continue to excel, you can wrap that in as well. Um, But just finding how someone is motivated um, and having that carrot and the stick, I think has really helped me. I hear babies are expensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) I know firsthand. And selling stuff makes you money. Totally. Sounds like a problem and a solution. 
you got it. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. What are some techniques during the interview process that you can really test for that coachability? Yeah. So what I usually do is have them give me a pitch, whether it's um, Divi or Bill where I work or whether it's a company that they're currently at. Um, they'll go through their pitch. I'll identify an area where I'd like to coach them and present the feedback and have them do it once more to see really how well they can accept feedback and then they can give it back to me. So always having that knowledge reinforcement. Got it. If they do a bad job the first time, is there a second chance coaching opportunity there? No, I just end the interview right there. And it's hard to leave. <laughs> it's done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, walk out without saying a word. Yeah. Well, I'm honestly looking for someone to say, let me do it again. I like oh, that. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Has anybody done that? No, <laughs> no one has. All right. Well, if you're, if you're interviewing, that's a good, uh, yeah, this is a little a good tactic. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Going back to the, shift from enablement to management. What do you think some things are that somebody's in enablement, they've been there for a while. What would create hesitation to move into a sales management role? I think the pressure um, is a lot coming into a management role, having a quota, um, understanding that it's a really cyclical process um, that might scare them out a little bit. Um, I know enablement is metrics driven um but not can, can not really be. help can be it yeah can should be, be. <laughs> should be yes yeah but that that high pressure um situation may be something that might deter them it's fascinating because the pressure to develop the team you're almost responsible for the company goal with the, the management role. You're responsible for the team goal. And the, the other piece is you have authority in a management role. You don't have much authority in an enablement role. Mm-hmm. You got to build consensus and get people to buy in and work through channels and things like that. That can be incredibly mm-hmm. frustrating. But if you're in a management role, you got folks to directly report to you. Totally. You might, you might have complete fire authority because of various political reasons. But you've got, there's a fire in you to succeed. (laughs) Yeah. You've got coach authority. That's, that's for sure. Totally. Yeah. Nothing's stopping you from that. So I think it's interesting because you've got more authority, more autonomy, and you can make more money, which is good. I don't know. It's an interesting opportunity. Yeah. I think really understand, you know, what kind of person you are what you're looking for in your next move. Um, If it's a team environment, if it's, you know, creating a culture and really honing into that. um, If it's wanting to make a lot of money, then that's a really good sign that you'd be a good candidate for a management role. And you really have that understanding of how reps work and, you know, what motivates them, how you can train and coach. It really sets a good foundation to being a good sales manager. Yeah. How do you, how do you feel that the project management skills that you developed in enablement have impacted your sales management role? Really, really well, actually. I think I like to say, and and maybe my self-awareness isn't always in check, but I think I work really well cross-functionally and I know how to speak to people in marketing and product um, and share that common goal. Again, it always, I always bring it back to that, but having that skill set working with those people before in a capacity where you don't necessarily need as much from them um 
but now, you know, requiring a lot in return for a team's success, you're just able to earn that respect a lot easier in my experience. You brought up product. I rarely hear sales managers talk about working with product. Tell me how, how you do that and what you get out of it. Yeah. Well, we work actually quite closely with product. Um, and I, I think it's really cool to have that perspective to understand that we have some impact on how the product changes. Um, Bill is really good at receiving feedback from reps, from managers, and incorporating that into the product. So I think maybe we get a little more time with product than they would hope because um, they're constantly building. But I think it's really good to just have that visibility into where the product is going. It helps us sell. Got it. And then in terms of when products get built, what's that look like on the back end to get your team spun up? And so, and this could be from enablement for management yeah. to make sure that, hey, we're not just showing off all the cool features we built. We're actually building something to solve a problem for a customer. Yeah. The really cool thing about Bill is we have um, an ex-sales engineer that is on the enablement side. So oh. there, we're actually going through a training right now um, where they're training us up on the product and ensuring that it's from a sales perspective. So we understand the product and then also know how to sell it. That's awesome. I love, yeah. I love the idea of having sales engineering or product folks in that role. Product marketing is good. Product market—it's—it's it's funny that companies will take the product and filter it through marketing to give it to the sales team. Because marketing and sales need different things. Marketing is doing things like building brand awareness, running campaigns, doing events, doing super top of funnel things where you're trying to attract eyeballs, for example. Whereas sales teams are trying to uncover pain and close deals. So yeah. why would you run the product through a filter of marketing to get it to sales? when you could instead have two paths, get marketing what they need, get sales what they need, and then rock and roll. Exactly. And then customer success might need a little bit of both. Yeah. Because they need to get some eyeballs from their customers and they also need the, man, customer success teams that do great discovery. It's insane what their NRR net retention rates are. You know, people are going to buy more just because it's good. People are going to buy more because they're experienced. But if the customer success teams focus on discovery and they're actually good at it, then you're rocking and rolling. Yeah, you can't lose with good discovery. That's it. You can't lose with good discovery. Why don't we wrap on that, Jenny? Anything else that you wanted to uh, touch on? Anything you want to plug? I don't think so. I think I guess just to all the enablement folks um, that maybe are a little worried in this market, you definitely, you know, we'll have a place in a future company, just understand where your skill sets are. Um, and don't be afraid to take that leap, that jump, because it can be really rewarding. Take the jump. And I'll tell you from experience, if you take the jump now, if you haven't been in sales management, I work with a lot of sales enablement folks through Coach CRM who have been former sales managers, and they are heads and shoulders above the standard enablement folks that haven't been sales managers because of the perspective, the skill set that they've built, the relationships that they've built, and really the way that they're able to drive change throughout an organization with less work. I always tell managers, if you're doing more work, probably doing it wrong. There's always ways to do things faster and easier. And if you have that experience and that skill set of being a great frontline manager, driving success month in, month out, quarter in, quarter out, and throughout the end of the year with the teams, it truly does make the enablement role easier 
and you don't end up in this position that some teams I've worked with have where enablement doesn't even know what sales management's doing because they've been pushed aside. They've been relegated to an administrative role and they're hiding out over there in the corner, delivering things, doing stuff, pushing things over the finish line, but it's not getting the adoption that it needs. It's not driving the results that it needs. Having that really tight integration is amazing. So if you've got a situation right now where you're trying to figure out what you're doing, what you're going to do with your career, if you're thinking about maybe making the leap in sales management, I hope that Jenny has been motivation to help you do that. Jenny, thank you so much for joining me today. Again, I'm Corey Bray, co-founder of Coach CRM. Check out coachcrm.com. We've got a free product also. It's not just a free trial. We've actually got a free version. It's not everything. It's not going to solve all of your coaching pain points, but it'll hit a couple of them. Check us out and I'll see you next time on the Sales Management Podcast. Thanks. 